Hello, 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 hello. This is Dr. I, and I'm with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Joe, and we are representing Women's History Month today. So welcome to all of you that are women and those that aren't women. We welcome you as well. And we know that even if you're not famous enough, so to speak, to be on a broadcast or be in a magazine, every woman who's out there is making history in some way. So congratulations to everyone. And they make history every day when they go into the refrigerator and there's four or five things in there and they come out with a masterpiece. Don't get us started this morning. I know it. I know it. I know it. My mother was a magician. She could take any situation and find the good in it. At the same time, they were wiping noses and providing Absolutely. transportation and, and all of the above. Mm -hmm. My mom taught me the, the meaning of being a community advocate. She was a caregiver for several people um, and would go by their houses and bring them food and check on their bills. And uh, um, that's what I witnessed growing up as my mother was a social worker. And we don't mean to overlook the roles of men and others who have been supportive of the history makers who we're celebrating this month on the window, but who hopefully you're celebrating in your own lives every day. I know, I know, I know. So at any rate, um, we're talking about women in business today. Women are in business almost every day because they take a few dimes and nickels and end up at the store with a bag full of groceries. And what's really special about our guest today is that they're not just in business, but they are entrepreneurs, meaning that they have done what many of us has dreamed about. They have stepped out on their own, oftentimes stepped out just on faith, and started their own business. Yeah, and um, the first one that's supposed to call in um, is truly um, a magician. Um, she is a wife, a mother, um, a businesswoman, and she's also um, a part of a family. And we are just waiting for her to call in right now. But while we do that, we'll make a, a few announcements. First, for those of you who are faithful listeners of The Window, and we'll talk more about this near the end of the show, but this is our anniversary month. We have been on the air nonstop every Saturday except for our holiday respite for one year now. We started in March of 2021, and as we speak, it's March of 2022. So we will come back to that. But congratulations, Dr. I. You're the history maker who called me and asked me to join you in this venture. Well, little did I know that that was going to be the craziest year I've ever experienced. Well, we'll definitely talk. In fact, maybe we'll devote part of this show or a future show to that. But I just want to spend a few minutes because our listeners don't necessarily know your background. If you're in the central Ohio area, you probably know the name of Iris Cooper. But for those of you who have joined us as listeners, I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself as we talk about <laughs> women history makers and Women's History Month. You're so sweet. That's why I picked you to work with me. <laughs> Um, but truthfully, Joanna hired me at Franklin University. I was just walking through the hall, and she says, hey, would you like to teach for me? I said, yeah, I would. Based on your background, of course. Well, anyway, um, Evansville, Indiana, I know many of you have wanted to visit that 
metropolis, but that's where I'm from. It's the tip of the boot. Indiana's a boot. It's right across from Kentucky and right on the Ohio River. And it says, let's say, agricultural and country as you would want it to be. There were some businesses there. Me Johnson Industries, where my dad worked. And he was Me Johnson's chauffeur. And while he was driving a long limousine, he was catching all of the business news and politics and economics and foreign language. And, and then he started his own business. He started catering parties for rich white people. So he worked a limousine during the day and he served and did parties at night. And then my mom was from Como, Mississippi, which is another metropolis I'm sure you want to visit. But um, I went once and swore I would never go back again. But I love my people, and uh, my mom left and went to Russ College. They both went to HBCUs. Both did not finish, but they went and they got that experience and vowed that their children would go to college. So, um, anyway, that's kind of how I got started. I went to Fisk University, uh, HBCU, until... Um, Fisk ran out of money the first time and then I had to come back and go to Indiana and uh, Indiana was like going from one continent uh, from from Evansville to the next it was totally different but I made the adjustment um, and I finished with a bachelor's degree in journalism and um, then I left went to work for a little while but then went back and got a uh, MBA in marketing and that's kind of how I got to Columbus one of my professors was um, a guy named Charles Lazarus and he taught marketing distributions systems and as the only black female in the class my position was in the middle in the front and um, so that's how um, we got to know each other. I made it a point to uh, stand out subtly or overtly every class period. And after it was over, he said, do you have a job? And I said, well, nothing that I'm really excited about. He says, I want you to come and see my store. When I walked into Lazarus, after flying from his personal jet to Columbus, Ohio, I was speechless, speechless. I'd never seen anything but Sears and Pennies. And um, I was speechless. And he took me in, and within less than a year, he had promoted me to marketing manager of all the restaurants at 23 years of age. Now, do you think I had some haters? I think you had even more haters, but also some people who love you dearly when you took that restaurant background and years later were a partner in a major endeavor. I stayed in that food lane, not as a cook, like um, the expert that's getting ready to get on the, the phone with us. She is a food connoisseur as well as a business owner. But no, I'm the world's worst cook. But I can help you 
find your niche from a marketing research and branding standpoint. So um, in any event, it's time for us to introduce um, my friend, my colleague, um, Michelle Allen. Are you there? I'm here. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm I ran into some technical issues this morning, but I'm here and and happy to be so. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we were just talking about how busy business women are. Mm. And so I would like for you to summarize some of your um, your uh, route to where you are today. Well, um, I, I, I actually didn't. That, Food service is my third career. I kind of, <laughs> I kind, I kind of stumbled into it by studying food science while I was living in Spain. And Pause. I think probably How did you get to Spain. Love. Okay. All right. <laughs> love. Okay. My my husband at the well, we weren't married at the time, but we had fallen madly in love, and he said, "Let's let's go to Spain for a month." And I said, "Yes," and we ended up staying for thirteen years and getting married and having our son. And you know, that's a whole other story. Okay. But while there, while my son was in nursery school, I studied food science, and I think probably because I have a child's palate, I gravitated toward more treats and desserts and fine pastries. And really, that was the beginning of my my professional involvement in food service. And so, tell us about Mello. Mm, Mello is my fourth business, and by far the one I love the best. We are a, a modern confectionery, and we cater to uh, a variety of, of um, lifestyle choices: vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, and we do that all with using natural ingredients. And I think a lot of our recipes kind of fly in the face of mainstream confectionery craft, but really the core of our business is using whole foods to make really spectacularly delicious confections, chocolates, and pastries. Um, hello? I'm, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Okay, well, I don't know where it's coming from, but I hope it's not me. We're fine. I we hope can it's hear not you. <laughs> oh, good. As long as you can hear me. Yes, yeah, so we, you know, at our heart, we are a, a modern confectionery, and we really strive in, in all areas to build um, wonder and community around the food that we produce. A confectionery. That means sweets. Yeah, it means treats, actually. And oh, okay. It's interesting that you, you, you zero in on that because I, I think because I trained in, in Europe, you know, confectionery has a much broader um, understanding there. And I think we ran into a lot of issues with calling ourselves a confectionery because people weren't quite as familiar with that terminology. And so there was a little bit of a learning curve involved. Whereas, you know, we, we, um, people would come into the shop and they'd see chocolate and say, oh, well, you're a chocolate shop. And I'd be like, well, no, I'm a... I'm a pastry chef who can do chocolates, and then they, you know, they'd have a marshmallow. They'd be, oh, well, you're a candy store. <laughs> I'd be like, well, you know. So it was a, a little bit of a um, of a learning curve, I think, for both our customers and and us in trying to figure out how best to present a a, 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 a valuable product to um, to the community we were trying to to serve. So yes, we are a, a confectionery in the broadest sense of the term. We offer, you know, the treats, chocolates fine pastries um, in, a, in an environment that is designed to enchant. Is it a seasonal business? Mm, it, it can be if it's, if it's set up, um, I think, and it's taken me a long time to, 
to figure this out. But yes, it can be seasonal, basically September through Mother's Day. But you'll notice a lot of times if you look at um, uh, sort of treat shops, yeah, they might switch over to ice cream or you know popcorn or that kind of thing to try and offset some of that. We do that through pastries. Um, our, our, our pastry business is not a seasonal business. That's something that happens 12 months of the, of the year. And, and really, I, I did that as a part of the, developing our business model as we, as we grew. Now, how do you um, keep people from worrying about gaining weight? <laughs> like me. Well, well, what I typically say is the, the problem in this country, and I'm certainly not dissing my own, my own nation here, but the problem is, you know, mainstream treat manufacturing is really based on using the least expensive, typically gen- genetically modified um, um, ingredients. And our bodies have a very difficult time processing that. Yeah, so it's not the treats per se that make you gain weight. Yeah, it's the way that they're processed that helps to, that contributes to you gaining weight. Yeah, so, you know, when, again, when I was studying in Europe, people get up every morning, they might have a croissant, a chocolate, and an espresso, but they're not gaining weight. You have to ask yourself, why is that? And, and the, 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 the conclusion I've come to is, you know, we don't have in our, in our pastries or our confections, we don't have high fructose corn syrup. We don't have even corn syrup. You know, our products are made with whole grains. Our croissants are made with whole grains. Our chocolates are made, you know, literally, I, I grind the chocolate myself um, with, you know, cocoa butter. And if I'm making it vegan, it's made with coconut milk. It really is real food. It's not, it's not you know, I don't know, manufactured junk is, is, or junk food is, as my category typically gets called. You know, we're not junk food. It's food made with whole food ingredients. Now, let me ask you this. What were the challenges that you had in getting up and running with this kind of business model? Um, Well, the model or the, the, because I would say the initial challenge for me was coming in here, coming back to the United States as a black person who didn't come from, from, from wealth and money, you know, trying to first figure out how I was gonna finance my business and um, that was a huge, huge challenge for me because I had been out of the country for well over a decade. The banks were not at all interested in talking to me. And so I had to be very cagey and figure out how I was going to piece together the, the seed money that I needed to put together um, my business. And so, you know, that would be the first thing that I would say to um, a young entrepreneur thinking about getting started. You know, don't underestimate you know, you always hear these stories of people like, you know, I did it on a, you know, a wing and a prayer and a dollar and a dream. And the, the truth is, you know, and especially in this economy, you know, you really need to figure out how much it's going to cost you to get your business off the ground, legitimately get your business off the ground, you know, because you can kind of, depending on your goals, yeah, if you want to kind of keep it as a kind of smaller, um, um, a small one or two person um um, endeavor that's totally cool and that works for m- literally millions of people but if you want to grow your business then you really have to get very savvy on how you're going to get that finance and that's one of the things I would say to most young entrepreneurs do not underestimate the importance of that from day one because you, you do have to have some kind of a, a, of a far-reaching um, horizon for how you're going to finance the peaks and troughs of your business. Did you feel that any of the resistance was because of your race or your gender? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, I find that honestly, Iris, I find that um, across the board, it's, it's, if you're, I've walked into meetings with, you know, because we do a lot of corporate business and a lot of those corporate businesses that have like, you know, older white people that are in those, frankly, that are in those, those decision-making positions. And, you know, I wish I had, you know, a, a, a dollar for every time I walked into a, a meeting and, you know, the, the person was uncomfortable or the person felt like, well, oh, wait, this is, this is the company that we're talking about doing this you know, this large corporate project with or um, so, but I, I, you know, the flip side of that is know that going in, you are inevitably going to run into someone who is going to respond to you in that way, already have your your strategy for dealing with it um, in place. Because basically at this point, I see it, I have a strategy for it and I keep on going. Yeah, I keep pushing my, my um, pushing for the goal that I'm, I'm trying to achieve in that meeting. Um, it's out there and it's real. I mean, I, I, I recently had a situation where um, the, 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 a couple of key players just were, they didn't openly admit to being uncomfortable, but the, the terminology that they used was, well, you know, we're, we're looking to spend a lot of money and it's, you know, it's unclear whether this, this business is, is, um, is in a position to actually to service this project. Um, and you just have to be prepared to deal with that and, and know that it's out there and have a strategy to deal with it. And I assume that having a family was an additional challenge as you started the business. Yes. And I would say that's another piece of like a, a lesson that I learned and I share with young entrepreneurs as well. You know, the universe has a, has a funny way of of molding itself around what you need. And if you sort of set your, you know, your hard lines. Mine was, come hell or high water, I'm going to be home for my son in the afternoon. I don't care what's going on. You know, my son gets out of school at a certain time. I'm at home for, for that. And I literally built my business around that. I mean, I would be at home maybe doing some administrative stuff online or something, but I was home when my son was home. And that is something my, literally, my, even my staff now knows that Michelle's home when her son gets home. And the business is built around me being able to do that. And, and so I would say make the, build the business around the way you need it to, to function, to, to, take care of, um, to take care of your family. Because, you know, they're going to make sacrifices for you to have this business. But if you can figure out what those, those boundaries are that really protect them and, and the core of how your, your family functions, then the business will, will be less impactful um, when those sacrifices need to be made. Before we take the break, Michelle, tell the audience where you are now and what you have. In, in what sense? The store that you have. Where are you? Oh, the location. Yes, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can find us now in the uh, Polaris Mall. We're right across from uh, Apple, and we are uh, we're there. You can also see us online. But the, the store in, in uh, Polaris is across from Apple. That's fifteen hundred Polaris Parkway, and we are there from twelve to seven every single day. I've got a great team there. So you go there, they'll walk you through the collection and tell you what's available. But you can also check us out online, and that's www.mello.co. 
So mellow.co, and there you can see the entire collection, read a little bit about us as a company, and, and, um, and actually we're going to start including, we're actually going to be starting a blog that's going to be including our, um, our, our followers on the process of our business, because we're actually doing a pivot to wholesale right now, and I'd like to share that process with as many people as I possibly can, because it is very interesting, and it is, um, it's quite an undertaking. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, Michelle, and we will be right back to finish this conversation on the window. We are back with um, an entrepreneur, Michelle Allen. And Michelle, you've survived the pandemic yes, ma'am. and the economic downturn and whatever else you want to call it. Um, how did you manage through the last two years when people were unable to go outside without a mask and some t- of us didn't go out at all for a while? How did you manage through that? Well, I would say I've got a really, um, it's another piece of advice that I share with people. You need a network of people, of advisors, and, and trusted, trusted um, um, people who believe in your concept to really work through tough times. And, you know, I think the, the beginning of the pandemic was the toughest time because, you know, honestly, I was like a lot of businesses. I had no idea. And, and if you'd asked me in March of 2020, how we were going to survive this. I didn't have an answer to that question. But I did have a lot of people who's, who's, who were very smart people who I could speak to and, and, and strategize with and talk through um, how I was going to make it through this particular um, unprecedented event, event. So that would be one of the biggest pieces, of, another big piece of advice I would say. Have your people, build your tribe because you're going to need them. Um, and, and those are the people that help you figure out um, what your business strategy is going to be, um, what your um, what your hiring strategy is going to be, you know, to sound off the ideas, because you, you know your business better than anyone else, but you need outside people to help you formulate ideas and, and, and act on some of those things when times get really hard. And I don't think they get any harder. In my professional experience, they haven't gotten any harder than in March of 2020. What happened in March of 2020? Can you remember the day yeah, when it really hit you in the face? Well, literally, because we had, I would say, 60% of our business is corporate work. And on, there, was, there was literally one day, we had an L Brands job that we were working on, we were developing a new product with. Literally, 100% of our corporate work shut down, all of it. Mm. And, and so in, in that moment, in that month, uh, well, no, I would say in that span, it was a span of like a five-day period where corporate America was, was, it was kind of dawning on them, okay, well, listen, we all need to stop. And the trickle-down effect meant that all the, the vendors downstream of those decisions, me included, got immediately told that, you know, whatever projections you had based on this, these contracts is not going to happen. And so, and at that point, in our company, we had exactly three payrolls in the bank at that point. That was it. We had three payrolls in the bank and no prospectus, pr- prospective um, business coming in. And so um, that was among the most sickening, sickening experiences of my professional career. How'd you get you out know, of I have, it? I have people working for me that rely on me. Um, 
Well, the part of being an entrepreneur, Iris, is when the unexpected happens, you start, You this is when you find out what you're made of. I literally reached out to every um, financial contact I had, every every um, business advisor I had, um, I, I, you know, you were on the receiving end of that. I called mm-hmm. everybody and said, okay, what's in the pipeline? What, what, what's going on? How are we actually going to prevent our business from, from, um, from, from basically closing and, and all of the people that, you know, work for me being out of, out of work? Because that was a huge thing for me. It was, okay, yeah, it was the, the business. But, you know, I have people, you know, with mortgages. Do you know what I mean? It's like it, it, it was really important to me that we figure out how to do it. In any event, you know, luckily, you know, I called the restaurant associations. Like, what are you guys doing? You know, because we need to, we, we need you, whatever you're, whoever you're talking to in, in Washington, you guys need to be figuring out how to make sure that we're getting those, those, those dollars that are clearly coming down the pike. So really, what did I do? I tried to position my business so that it could take full advantage of the emergency funds that were coming um, coming uh, down the pike. And, and I was able to, to get most of what I needed to get going. And, but I would say also, Iris, that was great, and that, that strategy worked. You know, we're still here. But what it also allowed me to do was sort of stop and figure out what are the most effective aspects of my business to, to, to weather this storm, and we actually pivoted to um, pivoted to the, the the basically our core competencies. We did nothing but our core competencies. We didn't do any extra kind of like some of the corporate stuff that's a little bit out of our wheelhouse, but we would do anyway because it was a good client. All of that shut down, and we just stuck to what we were really good at, and that's all we did. And we did that in an environment that was online. I immediately hired a delivery guy, and we, we just got to work. What's your top product? Well, it's funny you ask that because we're, um, I think in the beginning of our conversation, I was saying, you know, we, we had some issues with how we were perceived. It's like a, you know, in, in air quotes, chocolate shop. You know, we sell a lot of chocolate. Um, I, I'm, I've gotten well known for the chocolate that, um, that, um, that I do. So I would say my top um, chocolate is our, our, our top product is our chocolate collections, our bars, our bonbons. Um, those are our top selling items. And that's. But I, I'm going to change that. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to add to that rather. Because we have a. That's sorry, every all day, all year long, though, isn't it? That's not seasonal. You'd be surprised. It is seasonal. People tend, retailers, tend, retail buying, meaning the customer that comes into your shop, they tend to stop buying chocolate when the weather gets warm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, less, it's less of a, a thing that people think about. So, um, you know, we tend to do, as I said, we tend to do more pastry work or we'll do gelatos or those kinds of things when the, when the weather kind of gets cooler because sales do drastically drop off. But ironically, it's like September rolls around and all of a sudden everyone starts thinking about buying, you know, chocolates again. So um, it immediately picks up in, in September. We definitely have that three-month period where it's, um, it's fairly slow, except for on the corporate side, which is a different, a different um, situation. So you juggle corporate business, retail business, and running a family all at once. Yes, ma'am. I sure do. That kind of makes you a superwoman, doesn't it? 
I think women do it all the time. Honestly, I really do. I think women are amazing. And the things that we are able to do, I think we often go into, I'll circle back to that question you said, did I ever feel like my, my gender or my race was a, like a hindrance? I think as, as black women, we run into that all the time. And we take care of our families and we run our businesses. So I don't really look at myself as a as a superwoman because I see, I see women of color doing this all around me. What I do think we have, we have a lot of grit and we have a lot of hustle. And I think it is the thing that keeps us going. I really do. So as we celebrate Women's History Month, what's important about history is not just the fabulous stories like yours that we hear, but the foundation that lays for the future. What do you think is in the future for your business? We are, you know, the, the, the goal for Mellow right now is, is growth. We are really, and, and the pandemic, I, I would say, people say, oh, well, how, was the pandemic horrible for you? And I say, yes, it was horrible. But it was also, there was a, a bright silver lining in it. And that was, I was able to really refine our business model. We are, uh, we are set to grow. We are set to push into uh, the wholesale marketplace. We're currently looking for um, the manufacturing capabilities so that we can service the, the demand that's for our product. So that really is the next um, the next uh, phase. And I would say this as well. I, I am openly um, uh, um, biased with, with respect to women and women of color and also um, women who are restored citizens, people that are, are coming out of prison, they've served their time. I am really supportive of that community and I, I, I make every effort to make sure that they are a, an, an integral part of our um, of our uh, of our staff we have many of those people on our staff right now and 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 I'm looking for more so um, that's that's a big part of, of our business model actually is, in, is is training people who normally would not have access to this this craft um, in these these skills and hopefully hopefully when I'm you know long gone there's a another um, person of color that's sitting in this position continuing with this legacy is there another location possible yeah we're looking and I think I had a Vine Street store we closed the Vine Street store um, but we're, we're looking for a couple of locations right now right now we're just in Polaris Mall and you can get it get us online but um, the goal is to open up other brick and mortars once we find the right situation. I think also once the economy is um, is is gets a little more um, a little less volatile. I think we're all waiting on that, uh, Michelle. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. gas. I was almost late for this show because of the gas because yeah. I pulled up into Kroger and it was four oh nine. And there were people in line, I guess, to get it before it went up any higher. Um, so we're probably going to see um, some economic instability for a while. But as we wrap up um, this interview, I just want to say that um, you are a star. You were a star in the Enterprise class. And I foresee you. Um, growing and becoming more of a force in the retail food business. 
Thank you, Iris. And thank you for all. You've been supportive and a good friend and a mentor from day one. And I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for you. And as weary as we all are of this virtual world, one thing that it has done that's positive is to let us know how interconnected we can all be. Absolutely. Our show is broadcast live from Columbus, Ohio. And so you've talked about your brick and mortar locations here. But repeat for us again your internet address so that all of our listeners all throughout the country can support you. Absolutely. We are www.mello.co. So www.mello.co. M-M-E-L-O. Is Mello an acronym? It's not, actually. My husband came. He said it was the sound mellow, with the two M's. It was the sound people made when they ate my food. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. That's where that, that comes from. Okay. Well, <laughs> listen, thank you so much for it's taking my time pleasure. out of your day. Anytime. And, anytime. Uh, I'll see you soon then. I look forward to it. Thank right. you. Have I a really good day. appreciate it. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And so for those of our listeners who might be wondering why we're spending a show in Women's History Month focusing on female entrepreneurs, that is history. Anytime anyone can take their own dream and turn it into an enterprise like this, then that's that person's historical story. And so we hope this motivates some of you who are listening to follow your dream and be a history maker. We are going to bring on another guest just before we go to a break. And I don't want this show to end, Dr. I, without going back to your story of how you have used the history that you shared with us at the beginning of the story to help other black entrepreneurs. In fact, why don't we go ahead and do that before we bring on another guest? So you, you talked us through the point where you entered the corporate world at the young age of 23. Right. Um, Charles Lazarus, believed in me and he took me to the head of the class and there were some people wondering what was going on because I had just gotten to Ohio and but he had seen me in class and so um, within I'd say about 90 days of a retail training program in the warehouse which I hated 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 um, he took me out and He says, how would you feel about being the marketing director for the food division? And I pretended like I had the skills to do that. I said, oh, no problem, no problem. And so the very next opportunity that came along, I was giving um, food operations managers challenges. And they did not like that either. They didn't like it coming from a black woman they didn't like it coming from a 24-year-old black woman who had never run a restaurant and couldn't cook and still can't cook. Hate cooking, actually. But you don't have to cook to be good at marketing, research, and branding. You don't. And so that's what I did. I went through every food operation, looked at its past, its present, and where it could go. And um, right at that time, uh, watching your weight uh, became a real popular um, activity, uh, different kinds of diets and um, uh, protein shakes, all those kinds of things. Yogurt was big back then. And so he allowed me to open up a completely new restaurant on the third floor 
in the women's division where all the women went to shop and I created a menu for that woman. Now see, a lot of businesses don't understand that you have to know your target customer like you know your best friend. And that comes from information. That comes from talking to them and making sure that you ask the right questions about their lifestyle and what's important to them. And do they have any money? All that kind of stuff um, has to be gathered. And then you design an operation to fit that profile. And that's kind of how, how all of that got started. I did that for every restaurant. And to my surprise, sales went up 9.6% in one year because of the French chef I brought into the chintz room and uh, the women's restaurant. And we started a sub shop, Subway and uh, home plate, all these crazy ideas. He gave me a blank sheet of paper. And let's just say I wasn't that popular at Lazarus with the food operation. As we prepare to go into a break and bring our next guest on, I'm gonna challenge all of our listeners as we celebrate Women's History Month with our focus today on black female entrepreneurs. Just as you hear Dr. I telling her story, and as you hear our guests telling their stories, you have a story too. And so grab a napkin, grab a notebook, grab your iPhone. If you're driving, don't do that, but grab whatever you can and start to jot down your history, your own personal history. You'll be amazed at what you've done and the legacy that you've created for others, either in business or in some other aspect of your life. But as we talked about, a lot of folks are business people and they don't even know it mm -hmm. because they juggle households and budgets and ads and that type of thing. Okay? All right. All right. Before we go into the break, we're going to introduce our next guest, but a bit of history. When we're talking about business and we're talking about black business and we're talking about black female entrepreneurs it's hard to do that without invoking the name of madam cj walker she was the first black female millionaire and the way she did that was by meeting a need that's still a need she focused on women's hair care products based on her own bad experience and i know some of you listening can relate to your own bad experiences with hair. So when we come back on the window celebrating black female entrepreneurs for Women's History Month, we're going to introduce a local entrepreneur in the hair care business on the window. We're back on the window celebrating Women's History Month in celebration today of black female entrepreneurs. Now, as we record this, it is a Saturday afternoon. And so you know that if a black hairstylist, if a black owner of a hair salon takes time to be with us today, that's a really big deal. Sacrifice. It's a big sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So Karen Gary of Synergy Salon here in Columbus, Ohio, thank you for taking the time out to squeeze us in on a Saturday on the window. No, when I called, I gotta come. I gotta come. <laughs> Karen, this is Iris. Do you remember when I met you? Uh, which time? Uh, you talk about um, when uh, uh, we was uh, the Glory Food Day? No, you, you, and your first business 
were bank customers. Oh, How is that society? Oh, society? Yeah, and I think you were like a teenager or you were very young. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was like 20. And you were a... Um, you were really a trailblazer in some of these new fashion, fashionable hairstyles and treatments and mm-hmm. braids and everything. And uh, I, I never forgot you for that. <laughs> Karen, we're talking about the role that black businesses and black female-owned businesses in particular have played in the history of not only our race, but the country. But in particular, of course, we talked about black hair care business. What has your journey been in this business? Mm, it has been quite an exciting journey. Exciting journey. Uh, a lot of twists and turns. Um, because with hair, fashion changes. Um, so you you got to make, you got to shift all the time. And that's what keeps it exciting. So how did you start out in this business? Did you start out as a shop owner? I did not. I started out in a salon on uh, East Livingston called Bridges. I was, um, I did booth rental where I just, um, uh, you know, rented a chair and built up. But I always just had, um, I just felt like there was so many unmet needs when it came to black hair. Because I just saw like, back in those days, those was in the early 90s. It was just hard for women to just get their hair done. Like they had to be in the salon for hours and hours. And just for a simple hairstyle, it would take like a long time. Or they would have to spend their whole day there. Mm-hmm. And that pained me. That pained me real bad. Because I was like, I can, if I could figure out a way for them to, for women to get in and out of the salon faster, it would make the whole world better. I, that, I really thought like that. Like I was like, there's so many opportunities here for women to just, they should be able to get their hair done. That shouldn't be like something that takes all day. And that was my whole reason for, you know, moving forward and opening the salon because I wanted it to make it better. Karen, but you grew up in an entrepreneurial family to, to my recollection. Yeah, my father had, uh, had a... Um, General home, mm-hmm. and he uh, he did Amway, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so and my I have a lot of uncles that are entrepreneurs. So now I have a cousin that is uh, uh, um, he owns a funeral home here, and yeah, it was very all of our, you know, we were trained like that. Like mm-hmm. We were groomed to be entrepreneurs. Very respected family. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. So, what was it that gave you personally the the nerve to step out in response to what you <laughs> saw as the need within Black Hair Care? Well, my dad told me when I was young. He, when you know, we were talking about what it is I want to do when I grow up or whatever. He just told me, "Don't." He told me, "Don't work for nobody." He said, "Find a way to work for yourself." And then my mom said, uh, "You're good at doing hair." So then I just put those two together. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll do hair. Um, and I, I just never seen it no other way. And I just always was, I think my, look, my, my issue is I always wanted to help people. You know, I wanted to help stylists. I wanted to help the clients. 
and I knew, you know, I couldn't do it alone. So I always, always was forward thinking like how to make it better, how to make it easier, how to make the process better. So every time, you know, it was, it wasn't always like, like it was a big picture, but there was always a lot of little steps. Like what, the, what is the next step? Like when clients struggle with making appointments, I'm trying to find a better way for them to make appointments or when stylists, you know, had trouble keeping the job. I found the ways to like, how do we keep you employed and still, you know, be able to raise your family. So I always, I think it was just all about solving problems and finding issues and then finding ways to, to solve it. Now, since you mentioned problems, talking about the problems and the needs of your marketplace, what about as a business owner? What kind of problems have you encountered and what have you done to overcome them? I have had all kinds of financial problems, whether there is bankruptcy, foreclosures, uh, because my issue was I, I invested my 100% all into my business and I allowed some other things to be neglected in that process because I just threw my whole self at um, my business. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with just balance, whether it's time, money. Um, but for me, it was, it was hard for me to, uh, to just be normal, like just to, to have a normal life, like, because I just, I just was so passionate about my business that I feel like I gave it too much. And you had a son too while you were doing this. Yeah, he's he's he got he's he doesn't he kind of has an entrepreneur buzz, but he he saw a lot and he's actually a little, he's a little gun shy um, because he works for my cousin in the funeral business. So he's like, I don't want to be like y'all. <laughs> 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 I'm like, well, you gonna be like something, so you might as well choose what you want to be. But he 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 wasn't he's not impressed. But he um, he said it that way. <laughs> and, and you had a son when you started out in your early years. Your household has grown recently. Yeah, I have ten kids, three at home, but ten kids. Yep, ten kids. Yes, but <laughs> that's the old woman in the shoe, isn't it? <laughs> very recent That's the old woman in the shoe. He lived in the shoe. <laughs> Had so many children, she didn't know what to do. Yeah, and that's why I'm like, I told you it's all about helping people. Oh, like, I'm wow. always in another situation to uh, to add value to. So that's what that is. Yeah. So, how long then have you persevered in your business, in spite of and because of everything you just talked to us about? Thirty-five. Years. 35 years and so in the past few years something happened that none of us imagined when I heard that we were about to go into COVID lockdown I was actually sitting in my stylist chair and a news flash came on TV that as of midnight the governor of our state was going to shut down a lot of things including hair salons I can remember my stylist on the phone calling people saying you better get here right now in the next few hours Karen tell us about the pandemic and what that did to your business and how you either recovered or are in the process of trying to recover recovering so during the process of pandemic Karen are you on a bluetooth bluetooth or a speakerphone as you call in okay can you hear me now yes thank you yeah uh, actually during the pandemic it was pretty good for us because uh, we have a uh, 
nice online uh, business, and uh, that was an oppor- another opportunity to help people be able to manage their hair at home during this pandemic. There was a lot of women who had never shampooed their hair. They always went to the salon. So we, um, during that process, we uh, had a shampoo challenge, and which was still getting re- residues, you know, just helping women, like, okay, this is what you're going to do. Like, just shampoo it. Like, don't try to... Um, you know, don't try to be your stylist, but just try. Because I knew that when the pandemic was over, if people didn't shampoo their hair, it was going to be, oh, God. I, I just, pain, it pained me to think of what was going to happen <laughs> when people came back if they wasn't at least shampooing it. So that was really a good time. That was a good time. And we just, during the pandemic, I just did online, you know, just hair tips and things that just, keep people entertained and you know inspired while we were going through it then when we opened back up um the salon it was pretty good it was pretty good but uh now we're kind of feeling some of the effects um never business uh people still getting their hair done that's not the problem but i just it's just it's just a different mentality out here when it comes to in the salon as far as working and you know it's, it's hard people i feel like you know they the pandemic uh it, it's hard to get people to go back to business as usual customers uh, and staff i would the, imagine the customers are good like actually i like the way the customers are the staff you know it's hard to get you know once you've been out on your own and there's you know now that the pandemic has birth like different entrepreneur ways for people to and I had W two employees and now it seemed like after the pandemic people figured out, you know, just different ways where they can grow themselves. So I think that changed a lot as business as usual, but it's it's all good. That that's very interesting. We hear nationally about I think it's called the Great Resignation and we think about how that impacts big businesses that we work for when we say, you know what, we like working at home, we don't want to go back. But as a small business owner, you're encountering that too. You yeah. you manage a staff, correct? Yeah, and I just retired everybody like, yeah, I'm done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm done. I don't want to manage them anymore because it's, it's just, I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think it's just because it's, we nobody could have had anticipated what was coming down the pipeline. So you... You have to shift, so. Right, and that's what entrepreneurs do. You look at what's going on in the market, and you shift accordingly. Dr. I and I rolled our eyes at each other when you mentioned hair during the pandemic. Tell us your Internet address. You said you have an online presence now. Yeah, we have an online. So we have synergysalon.com, and we, you know, so um, we're on Facebook. Uh, Spell that Facebook. now, please, for our listeners. S Y N E R G I S A L O N Synergy Salon, and we focus on natural hair being worn straight or curly, with the ability to go back and forth, and the uh, solution to just learning how to really learn to love your natural hair. And you mentioned- while we were while we were off during the COVID, um, I did develop an online course where I actually teach women like you know like because people don't understand like why they can't manage their natural hair so i created an online course which we should be launching um in the beginning of april and it will be launched globally so that people who have daughters and um learn how to own manage their own hair or just even people who just really want to learn 
um, like what what is the you know why do people struggle with their own natural hair? And Karen, you mentioned natural hair in particular. For those of our listeners who might not know this in a historical perspective, black women and natural hair has been an issue for a long time. time, And more recently, you were instrumental in being one of the ones to speak out here locally in Columbus, Ohio, about what's known throughout the country as the Crown Act, C-R-O-W-N, that stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. There have been 12 states, I believe, as we speak, that have passed legislation saying you simply can't discriminate against people based on not whether their hair looks good, but whether they have good hair in the historical sense of the world. And Columbus, Ohio is a municipality that has recently passed that legislation. And you were one of the many entrepreneurs who were mentioned and who spoke um, for passage of the Crown Act. For our listeners who don't know about that, that's black history in the making. And again, if it's good for black folks, it's good for the whole country. The yes. Crown Act, it's what's under your hair, mm-hmm. not what's on your head. So so in terms of frying your hair and dyeing your hair, you're entitled to wear your hair, hair however <laughs> you'd like to. But you cannot discriminate in these areas covered by the Crown Act on someone based on whether their hair fits the Eurocentric model of what hair should look like. Okay, Karen, can you repeat your website one more time? I want people to know, hopefully you taking time out of your Saturday business results in some business for you. So what is your website again? And then your local phone number. It's www.synergysalon.com. If you go to that number, uh, you will find uh, anything. You can call the number 614-915-0624. Uh, you can message me directly, and then I can lead you to where you need to be. Karen, I have a question. What percentage of black females have natural hair versus straight hair? Now, I don't know that, because I do think um, the ties are turning a little bit, but I don't have that number. Cause see, I have nightmares about sitting in my kitchen with my mother, <laughs> and a, and a hot, with a hot curling iron. But the good news now is that you have the choice. Uh-huh. You can wear your hair however you want to hear That's wear your right. hair, That's and right. be proud of it. Mm-hmm. To our listeners, you can listen to a recording of this show. Pass it along to your friends on our website thewindownow.com thewindownow.com You can send us feedback before, during, or after show at thewindowfeedback at gmail.com Karen Gary from Synergy Salon. We're going to let you get on with your day and with your life as a history maker. We are so I'm so honored to be one of your customers, but we're even more honored to have you and every history maker listening to us, joining us this week and next week and in the weeks to come as we celebrate going into our second year on the window. Thank you, Karen. God bless Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.